If you believe your organization could be leaving untapped people potential on the table, you're almost certainly right. And this is the podcast for you. The Wise Talk podcast from WellWise reveals how well-being is applied as a strategic driver of organizational success. We host straight-talking discussions with experts across all workplace well-being factors to enable you to unleash the full potential of every employee, including yourself. Each episode is jam-packed with wise talk from wise souls, with powerful insights and guidance to ensure your organization's investment in well-being yields sustainable value and returns for everyone. We're back with the second Wise Talk episode featuring Wise Soul, Cipriana Hare, and we'll continue our discussion on how to create a high-impact well-being strategy that sustainably delivers ROI and VOI for the long term. So, let's get back to our discussion with Chip. So, considering that when done right, there is no doubt well-being would be an investment and not a cost, is it likely that many organisations are going to want to start or significantly improve their workplace well-being strategies? Chip, what advice can you give to an organisation starting out on this journey with little uh, to no prior investment or focus in this space? I say the specific point of of how you're starting on, on, on your journey on employee experience and, and the role well-being plays in, in that as well. And I would say that first and, and foremost, listen to the people. So there's an intrinsic way in how we've been doing HR for, for the past few decades where we've we've done it to the people rather than with the people. And I'm actually advising a lot of organizations to change that, that narrative. So to try to understand what are some of those needs, wants and desires of, of people, what resonates with them and, and how do we as, as organizations and HR professionals are able to respond to that. And to some extent we might not be able to, and in some extent we might be able to find different ways in, in how we respond to, to their needs. And looking at that that model we presented earlier on, on, on well-being, this you can segment that and, and start prioritizing. What what are some some of those um, key needs and wants? What are some of those areas of improvement or opportunity that you're creating for for the organization? And how you start creating a roadmap for for you as an organization like that. And I, I'm saying that because a lot of these organizations that um, I, I see in, in, in the market start with this big vision and strategy complex where they've never done this this thing before in the past. They have no um, support to, to even implement any any of these. And, and a lot of the things that they're designing is, is so aspirational and, and so like vision focus that it doesn't have the legs and the arms to wrap around the whole organization and support them. So what I go in and, and do is say, start small. What's the first step you can do in the first six months as an organization that has never done this before? Is there traditional success in doing this type of, of programs in the organization? What does that look like? What can we borrow from how the organization already behaves that, that we can bring into the area of, of well-being? And I start with small pilot and testing. So can we pilot and test in this department? Can we see if this pilot and test and the principles we've applied here apply to other departments? So I'm talking about, I don't know, retail, you're going into the shop floor and you're talking to people and, and their needs and, and their wants and their connection to well-being versus you're in a call center where people have access to technology and they have different type of, of needs and, and, and wants versus you're going into um, at a finance department and, and you're talking about different things to, to different people. 
And then as you as soon as you understand and, and you're starting to, to create some sort of principles, some sort of flexibility, some sort of understanding that the needs and wants of the organization as a whole, and you're starting to personalize some of that, you're able to then scale up to, to go with that. And I think another thing that I've I've seen traditionally done done in HR and, and not necessarily in a good way and to be honest, I spent a lot of time in, in HR, so I might be to blame for, for some of that as well is we have this uh, approach where we're driving a lot of initiatives and we're pushing them into the organization and then we're closing our eyes and saying it's done. We've pushed a new initiative to the organization, therefore it's their responsibility now to take it on and, and make the most out of it, rather than track it, drive adoption, understand what, what are the implications, review it regularly to understand if it's still valid three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. And we create these like long-term with, we've pushed it in, we've signed the contract for five years, we're gonna keep it for five years, whether some people are using it or not. And then we just report five years from now that we only had 10% adoption of, of that new initiatives or benefit or anything else. The thing is, it's moving beyond that responsibility of I've created it into I'm owning it and I'm making sure that the organization is making the most out of it. And if it's not right for the organization a year from now, then we have the flexibility of pulling it out and replacing it with something better that responds to the needs of the organization. But I think it's all of this is, is very conversational. So I'm very keen to, to find out what, what Bobby has to say on this topic. <laughs> yes, uh, again, we, we were aligned in our thinking and we agree in, in the sense that you know the approach that we try and take is we try to we try to give well we start with data and and very similar to yourselves you know that data must come from your workforce it's, and it, it mustn't come from the assumptions and and sometimes this is this is one of the challenges or pieces of resistance we meet which is well you know we already know what what our employees need or we already know where the problem areas are so can't we just go and fix those and often um first of all that the causation is not present they they might see a problem but they don't they assume the causation rather than actually have a proof point on causation and and secondly you don't know what you don't know and um yeah you might be absolutely right that there's this problem and this problem but there could be 10 other problems that you don't even know about um that that we can help you to reveal and um sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming like you say at the beginning because the reality is that workplace well-being is is a very networked um set of um parameters and factors and there's, there's multiple elements to it and it can feel a bit like well blimey we can't fix all of these at once and and that's exactly our our philosophy is we talk about um targeting what we call the lowest hanging fruit um first so small um, relatively low cost, relatively simple changes, and that could be anywhere within your organization from a simple adjustment to your rewards and recognition program to some leadership and management um, change, changing of, of training, or it could be about introducing um, some uh, nutritional advice to your employees because that's a big problem area within your organization. So small, those small sort of low hanging fruit pieces. And then we also like to point out um, from the beginning what we call the biggest barriers to success. These are the things where they're going to take much longer. They may be culturally embedded. They may be something that the industry itself rather than just the organization is, is carrying a burden of. And so it's being cognizant of those things, 
chipping away gently at them and, and starting to understand that there will be several steps and several movements to, to see significant progress there, but not to shy away from it because it's a bigger challenge area, but to, but to maybe only tackle one or two of those and, and, and leave everything else. So you've got your, your low hanging fruits and nice, quick, easy wins so the organization that people can see you making a difference and, and, and making a change quickly. And then some of the biggest stuff you're going to have to chip at over the course of a year, two years, three years, maybe longer. You know, it depends. It depends how problematic that particular element is. So, so yeah, definitely when starting out, that is um, they, they're the kind of recommendations we like to make. But the other thing is that we're talking today a lot about starting out, but but a lot of organizations started this journey some time ago. They may well be 10 or 15 years into their version of a workplace wellbeing strategy, but it isn't working. It, it isn't yielding the impact that they want. It isn't driving, um, driving engagement. It, it isn't actually helping people to improve their wellbeing or their performance, which fundamentally is what we're all aiming to do here. And if that's the case, a lot of these tips and, and suggestions that, that Chip and I are offering here are as applicable to an organization that's rethinking their strategy as it is about organizations that are, are starting from scratch. And in some ways, it's going to be harder for the rethinkers because they've got baggage and they've got layers and layers and years and years of, of, of stuff that they've, they've well-intentionally built up but to be able to have the, um, I guess, to be humble enough to say, you know what, this was right 10 years ago. This was where the world was. This was what was available to us. This is what the research was telling us. But the world's moved on and we need to accept that maybe what we're doing now isn't up to date. It isn't as effective as it could be. And we, we could be doing a lot better, probably for less less effort. And so being able to, to self analyze and to be critical about that as an organization rather than to say well we've been at this for 10 years so we know exactly what we're doing um it, you know that 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 is a maturity that that i'm seeing happening um in in some organizations which is great um so yeah that that sort of that dual approach and 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 thinking about this not just about a starting position but also about a, a new a new story or new chapter in your well-being journey well-being is a personal factor. Um, how do organizations account for hyper-personalization while still maintaining control over their budgets, Chip? Oh, I love this hyper-personalization element and um, working in employee experience is, is actually something that I'm always sort of at the top of, of my mind. So part of the, the work that I do in, in employee experience is identifying the, the personas or macro segments of, of employees and unlike customer experience where you'll have a lot of the demographic data attached to it what we do in in employee experience is we are creating behavioral personas so we're looking at people's behaviors wants needs sentiments attached to to work where do they find that the type of work and how do they deliver that that work for the organization so we're not necessarily looking at uh, female 35 to 40 um and and sort of that that level of demographic living in london and, and everything else we're looking at is this person uh, and sarah working in an environment where she has access to technology is she facing clients on, on a base day-to-day -day basis uh, what are some some of her needs of delivering her job what are some of her needs of when we're talking about 
uh, mental health and well-being. So looking at, for example, through the lens of, of COVID and the organization transformation that has happened as, as part of that, is Sarah interacting with clients? Does she need extra precautions and, and support in the um, level of interactions that she's she's having? Is she uh, potentially at a higher risk of anxiety and stress based on the current circumstances? Or is Sarah working from home for the past two years? So on the other spectrum, there's potentially a risk of isolation and, and uh, some, some of those other spectrums. So we're looking at what are the needs of the organization based on segments, based on behaviors, based on needs and, and wants, and how is the organization responding to that? And I think traditionally we, we went through well-being providers to say we employ 20,000 employees, therefore give us a package for 20,000 employees. Well, now we're going more and, and being a bit more strategic to say, actually, based on the data and the insights that we have from the organization and the needs that we've identified for these segments, we out of the 20,000 people that we have, we think that 3,000 might fit in this bucket where they might need to touch base with you once or twice a year. We have 3,000 in this bucket where actually what they need is, is this and this and this and this flexibility of picking up their, their own benefits or as, as you're progressing with that. So what we're creating a bit more complexity, but we're being more intelligence driven in the way we're making decisions about the, the providers that, that work with us specifically around well-being and, and mental health benefits or physical health benefits as, as we're going ahead with, with that. And I, I see this new type of, of behaviors being brought in into HR as almost like that negotiator that is actually informed and driven by insight from, from the organization that to some extent is minimizing the impact that that might have on, on your budget. And then you're reviewing that on a regular basis. So we stop doing these 15 years contracts where we play, pay flat fees on the number of employees that we're having and we're looking into Okay, it's been six months. How have people used this service? What is the intelligence that, that we're getting? Is this a service that is responding to the needs of, of people? Do we need to adjust? Do we need to change? Can we talk to employees to understand what, what is their perception of, of the value that they are getting as, as part of the employee experience service? And I'm talking very fragmented in here because when, when you're adding all of these pounds together, it, it comes up to, to your big budget of, of well-being. But what I've noticed even more than that is that well-being is stopping on, on being an HR responsibility and I see more and more departments saying actually we can provide some of the technology and we can work with the technology provider as INT to, to support this, this part of well-being and facilities saying we're picking up this part of the working environment as part of well-being so the, the cost it is not just attached to, to the HR department. So it's like a spread responsibility and a spread cost, but therefore spread um, ROI for the whole organization on, on how we see well-being maturing in, in organizations. And Bobby, can you speak more to this about the maturity of well-being um, in organizations? Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, again, uh, Chips hit the nail on the head where we were almost before forced into buying because 
because of the way that products were being sold, that was dictating how we were buying them. And, and we're getting a bit cleverer now. We're, we're, we're not spending our money on things because that's the way it's being presented. We're, we're, we're being more, um, we're negotiating those contracts better. And we're saying, well, actually, you know what? I don't need it for my whole workforce, even if it is 30% cheaper per head. If I do it that way, I, I'd rather spend more per head, but spend it on fewer people who are actually going to benefit and see a higher engagement and a higher benefit from that investment. So, you know, you're seeing that kind of uh, more acute um, and analytical approach to the types and the volume of services and, and how you communicate them to different um, groups, psychomet um, psychometric, demographic, etc. cetera, um, factors within your organization departmental. The other thing that Wellwise does is, is we think about well-being as three levels. And I think this is probably another area of maturity, which is, it, again, echoing what I said earlier and what Chip said, a lot of it used to be around kind of focusing on the employee and nudging the employee to change. And what we're starting to see now is the conversation moving to a team's level and a leadership level. And these three levels of em employee as an individual, team level and leadership level or organizational level. And so when we offer our analysis and, and our strategy, we look at those three factors. And, and when an employee engages with our diagnostics process, they actually get a, a personalized sort of set of recommendations based on, on the information they've given us. So at the very moment that they're thinking about these challenges and that they're exploring these themes in their environment, you're then presenting them with solutions and, and reminding them that the, the organization has some of those services available. Um, and so the communication can be sharper and more attuned at the right and delivered at the right time. And then providing managers and team leaders and supervisors with insights into the, the group that they're responsible for. And are there, as Chip says, particular dynamics that are different for, say, a, an accounting team compared to a marketing team or, or, or a frontline you know, retail team? So understanding those nuances and empowering and um, and also bringing in a degree of accountability at the managerial level to say this is this is yeah this is an organizational responsibility but you're part of the organization and to get the most from your team this is now something we need to help you evolve skills in and, and this is the data and insights we're able to give you to set you on that path and then of course there's the overarching strategic um, vision mission how do we talk about this is do, we're starting to see organizations have a have a vision and mission not just about what it is they're trying to achieve in terms of the purpose of the business but the type of organization they want to be and that is often starting to talk more to organizational level culture and and the types of um, organization they want to be within society and how they want to be perceived so it's all starting to to tie in and and as those conversations ripple through and the well-being conversation just seems to just keep hitting. It chimes now at every single point. You almost can't go to a professional conference without somebody talking about workplace well-being. But but that's absolutely right, and that is how we embed it. And if if we keep talking about it and demonstrating that it really does fit in everywhere, that is when the maturity of understanding and, and, and the way that we integrate these things will evolve and improve. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to see, although some people are probably getting a bit sick of it. <laughs> For leaders and managers looking to start or improve their wellbeing strategy, what further resources do you recommend? 
I like to say leaders and managers. Um, I think from from the amount of insights and and research that I interact with, there's uh, specific ones from the World Economic Forum where they look at almost like the macro trends of, of well-being and and the impact of, of well-being on economies and organizations, which is is quite a good one. You can pull up. Uh, stuff from from there from the impact of presenteeism and and absenteeism in in organizations and the the bottom line of of organizations which should equip managers and and business leaders in reinforcing some of that business case for for well-being but also as you're going into uh almost maybe maybe wrongly called the soft side of of well-being almost like the implementation and and the sentiment attached to it there's significant work that that cpd has been doing in the past seven years on, on this topic. I think it started in 2015, just before I, I joined them, uh, around the different angles of, of well-being, what different programs might look like, how it's maturing over time, and, and what some of the key indicators today of people needs and, and connections to, to well-being. But there's a plethora of, of resources out there that I'm sure people are interacting with, but uh, I think Bobby has some great recommendations as well. Yeah, so just because this topic today is mostly about sort of people starting out or, or evolving their, their well-being program, the book that I really, really recommend for those that are either super fresh to this or or maybe thinking they need to up their, their level of understanding is Chief Wellbeing Officer. Um, by Stephen McGregor and Rory Simpson. Um, not only do, if you listen to it on Audible, they um, Rory in particular has a beautiful Scottish accent, um, so that's always nice. But um, but the content is so rich. The um, they challenge so many assumptions. They give really great research, data points, insights, case studies all the way through, which really just helps to bring bring the content to life. Um, and it's it's a really refreshing read um, or, or audible book, and um, and I think it would be a great one for people to get into to 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 start getting their level that bit higher and, and sort of where the conversation is now and, and starting to understand it in, in that level of maturity. Wise Talk was brought to you by Wellwise, the workplace well-being optimizers. We know that there is a powerful source of untapped potential within every organisation we'll enable you to unleash it. For more information, contact us by sending an email to hello at bewellwise.com.